Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Polina Ivanova. And today we have with us Vangelis Kehriotis. Uh, Vangelis is Assistant Professor of History at Boazici University. Today we'll be talking about different versions of Greek identity in the late Ottoman Empire. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Vangelis, recently you published a few articles about Cappadocian Greeks who were politicians and educators and who strongly believed in the possibilities of social change uh, promised by the 1908 revolution and who tried to envision a future for Christians within the Ottoman Empire and not a Greek national state. But before we dive into the topic, maybe we could begin with the um, subject of, with this notion of Milet, since when we think about life of non-Muslims in the Ottoman Empire, the first thing that comes to mind is the Milet and the Milet system. And perhaps you could explain a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar with this notion, what was Milet how did it start, and what changed in the 19th and the 20th century? There is a kind of uh, conveying of authority on the part of the central administration, the Muslim central administration, to important leaders that uh, represent these different religious communities, a patriarch in the Greek Orthodox case, or a patriarch again in the, Armen- in the Armenian case, uh, Haham, but in the Jewish case. Anyhow, religious leaders that are also given secular administrative rights. And therefore, this creates a space of autonomy, presumably, that uh, permeates religious and secular issues and allows this population to develop in a space that is not controlled directly by the central administration. Now, what is important here is to remember that indeed there are differences in the way that the local, the religious communities are treated. That's why the Ottoman Empire, but it's not the only one, is not described as an empire of equality, I mean, these different populations are not equal by no means. It is described as an empire of difference, as it has been recently used in Karen Barkis' uh, book. But again, this difference is not a, a difference arranged based on equal criteria. It is a hierarchical system where, according to the way that the local populations can manipulate their relation with the center, they can get more privileges. The term used here, contrary to the modern term rights, and that's something we should stress. I mean, these privileges, these pre-modern privileges, eventually develop to something reminiscent of modern civic rights. For instance, the right to education. There was no such a thing before that. And that was not a right. Even if it existed, it was a privilege given by the authorities in Istanbul or in other patriarchates to these populations based on their possibility to claim such a privilege. If they could not claim such a privilege, they wouldn't have it. And when would you say this change occurs, going from the notion of privilege 
to the notion of rights? Is there a key moment in this? Is an, a, an 19th century thing. I mean, it could be uh, ascribed to the Tanzimat reforms starting from the 1830s to the 1870s. It could be uh, stressed, uh, stressed even further to the late 19th, early 20th century, because that's the time, especially with the Young Turk movement, that there is an attempt to re-inscribe every older notion into a modern context of uh, citizenship. Uh, I mean, both can be debated, but that's why the entire period between the 1839, 1830s and 1910s is discussed with the different nuances under the light of the attempt of a pre-modern empire to modernize itself. So one could not, could not give a specific date, but this is a process that has to be taken into account as a whole. That's about the Millet system, and actually there is a very strong uh, belief among historians that the Millet system contrary to the previous wisdom according to which it is established already in the 15th century by the Sultan Mehmed II as an attempt to reorganize a society and turn it into an imperial society, integrating all these different populations. Contrary to this wisdom, there are many who believe that the way that the millets were systematized, of course the term existed, of course the notion existed, of course, an understanding of uh, communal autonomy existed, but the moment that millets become a system with their proper representation, with uh, local quotas in administrative councils, it is the Tanzimat. So with the Tanzimat, we have the administrative repercussion or the administrative implementation of an older concept that had never been systematically implemented so far. So this is, the, if you like, the bureaucratization of the millet system and the assumption that this, since the 19th century, is the century of historicization, the assumption that all this used to exist from time immemorial, which is not true. What I find even more important, which is in a way the other uh, side of the coin, is that all these major millets include different groups which in a certain ways identify with each other. It could be religion. They have the same rituals, but not necessarily language, not necessarily local identity. There are so many differences among these groups which are included within or presumed to be included within the same millets. So, but in reality, although administratively speaking, they are, in other ways, culturally, for instance, or historically, they are not. And what we are trying to do is trace these differences, these different groups, and try to understand to what extent the differences might create conditions of tension that are eventually uh, mirrored in ideological and political choices. Could you give us an example of that? I mean, are we thinking of under the umbrella of the term Greek? Well, this brings us, brings us directly to the Cappadocian, uh, Cappadocian experience. 
because the Cappadocians, this is a term that was co coined in a way, existed of course, but from a point onwards it becomes a literary ter term to describe Rum, which means Greek Orthodox, uh, who do not speak Greek. Since these people develop a literature, because this is what makes it more relevant to our own discussion, there are other groups that do not manage to develop a literature in another language. There are other examples. For instance, Christians, Greek Orthodox, who speak a Slavic language. With the Cappadocians, what is important, and we'll get into the details, is that these are people that from the beginning to the end did not claim a separate nationality. They, don't, they didn't say, we are not Greek, we are something else, or we claim a different state. Never that was the case, one. Two, the use of Turkish in Greek characters uh, maintained this ongoing discussion that there is something weird there, that this population either lost their Greek language uh, or lost uh, or had to lose their religion, so they had to make a choice. So this, are, this is a mythology that has survived to this day. And already from the end of the 19th century, it was in the time of the uh, birth of Turkish nationalism. And at the conjuncture with the development of Greek nationalism, both sides claimed this Turkish-speaking Orthodox population for themselves, for their own national body, which is interesting because normally the opposite happens. When a population does not fulfill your criteria of nationality, you just reject them. Here the truth was that exactly because there was this ambiguity, both nationalisms tried to appropriate them for themselves. So and th that's that's what happens even this day. Mm -hmm. So you have okay. So there's a Greek Orthodox uh, population of Christians living in in Cappadocia. They speak Turkish. They write Turkish, but in Greek characters. Right. This is the Karaman Lydica. And then both the Greek nationalism and uh, would be Turkish Ottoman nationalism is trying to claim them as a as part of them. There, there are actually several kinds of genres which have been developed in this process. Uh, a few points. First, it was both in Greek and in Karamanlija. You have a vast amount of literature. The Karamanlija is what you described, apparently. But for instance, uh, Karolidis' works, and there is a corpus there, quite extensive, are all in Greek. So you have those who publish in Karamanlija and Evangelinos Misailidis here is their major figure, uh, a publisher and uh, a journalist who spent some time in Izmir and then moved to uh, Istanbul and lived for long years. He established a printing house and he is the person responsible for almost all publications, translations as well into Karamanlija. And there are cases where certain books were first translated into Karamanlija and then into Turkish, which was easy then. That's another interesting aspect. I might refer later on to this uh, intra-alphabet circulation of texts. 
So both Greek and Karamanlija and translations and original uh, and Istanbul mostly, but there are, as I said, in other cases as well. This is a vast amount of literature. There are newspapers. The Evangelinos Misailidis himself published for long years Anadolu uh, or Anatoly. And uh, this has become a source, a treasure of information for attitudes, for issues of identity, information about education. Since we focus to Karaman literature and intellectuals, let's say, uh, let me say one thing about, add one thing about identity with respect to the, the differences with other non-Greek speaking Christians. Um, in one of the dissertations recently defended on Anatoly and Vagilinos Misailidis, Stephos Benlisoy has argued, and I find this an extremely interesting argument, that uh, if there is any uh, self-description before the Turkish War of Independence about a population which is not Turkish necessarily, but it is Anatolian, I mean a population that claims and uh, feels proud of being Anatolian, these are the Karamanlik Christians. And it is very clearly described in one, in some of these articles in Anatoly. And I find this extremely important because these populations describe themselves, or at least Evangelinus Misailidis describe himself and his people as Christians, Anadolu Christian, that does not include any ethnic denomination. It includes geographical denomination and pre-modern, if you like, religious. And this is something that has gone totally underneath the radar for several years. These people do not describe themselves, although they belong to the Rum Mileti, but for our discussion now, this looks totally relevant. Everyone is part of the Rum Mileti. But for them, what is important is that they derive from this geography, they are Anatolians, and they are Christians. Now, this is a world of pre-modern identification, it's fine. But it has never been the case before that people were so proud of being deriving from this particular geography. And that's a discourse taken up later on by the Kemalists, and they had to make it work, because they had no other choice. So you can take lines, you can draw all sorts of lines for this kind of, from this kind of <coughs> multiple identities that lead us even to current discussions. Uh, and before we move to particular individuals, there is another aspect in this discussion, which is very much relevant to our modern national, our, our modern criteria of national identification. For the Turkish, broader Turkish public, these people are Turkish, because they speak Turkish. Uh, the first ever uh, lecture I gave in Turkish was in Antalya. And uh, as you know, and it is the case with other parts of the littoral, there have been in Antalya the descendants of Muslim Cretans. So then uh, I was discussing the local Greek population and at some point I mentioned the Karamanis because there was really a, an amount of this population who could not speak Greek, they were Turkish speaking. 
And someone mentioned <coughs> that actually this population are not Greek. These people are not Greek, they are Turkish because they speak Turkish. And then I thought that's the appropriate place to make this very simple comparison and tell them that if you accept a Greek audience to refer to the Muslim Cretans as Greeks because they speak Greek, then I will accept your reference to the Karamanli people as Turks because they speak Turkish. And suddenly it made sense, this kind of comparison. But the problem is for uh, the two societies, let alone the two academias, that use their own uh, local idiom when they refer to any phenomenon or population and totally ignore the necessity to compare, even when the comparison is as simple as that. You don't need any uh, extraordinary conceptual equipment to make this kind of comparison. So my, my general approach, my general argument would be in these cases that the Karamanli people, from my point of view, or the Muslim uh, Cretans, do not belong neither to the Greek nor to the Turkish nation. And the proof for that is the, um, the urge of both nations to uh, incorporate them. Otherwise, they wouldn't care. So uh, these are different cases. They have to be dealt as different cases. If they were dealt back then as different cases by the people of their era, even the authorities. And this will bring us to our, the core of our discussion. Who are these people? So let us talk now about Pavlos Karolidis, one of the protagonists of your recent articles. He was born to a Turkish-speaking uh, family of Orthodox Christians in Cappadocia. Uh, he went on to be educated in Izmir, then in Athens, in Germany. He eventually came back to Athens and had a very successful academic career as a professor of history. And later he returned to the Ottoman Empire, where he became a deputy at the newly formed Ottoman Parliament. I find this kind of mobility quite extraordinary. The Cappadocian, as the at the most prestigious professorial position in Athens, and then subject of a Greek king in the Ottoman Parliament. What made this kind of career possible? Before that, there are two comments that need to be made. First, that uh, there is a, a educational path that brings several of these people from Anatolia, regardless of where it is, Cappadocia per se, or other uh, regions which are further south or further west. There are associations, especially Anatoly, which was also co-founded by Karolidis. So there was already a trend before which was systematized and uh, further enlarged by Anatoly. 
sending people, sending children, mostly boys, but also girls, to study in Athens. Later on, there is another teacher's school on the island of Patmos. So there is this kind of uh, channel that uh, makes careers available for children which otherwise would would not would be unthinkable. That's one thing. Second, there's uh, apparently the magnet of Athens, the magnet of uh, Greek culture, the uh, capital of Hellenism. And this, going parallel to the similar development in, uh, or at least progress, part of the renaissance of Hellenism in Istanbul. So there are two centers of Hellenism. These are things well known. Now, Athens becomes more and more uh, central in this kind of uh, rivalry, let's say, towards the end of the century. And this is where Karolidis' place becomes even more important. Uh, so this kind of uh, transition that you mentioned, first Athens, then Izmir, then Istanbul, makes sense also, not only in political terms, but in geopolitical terms as well. Uh, so that's one part. <clears throat> the other, which has to do directly with cultural provenience. That's true, but until uh, the dates that we are discussing, someone who comes from Anatolia is compared to the urban context of Athens and outsider. Would that be the case with someone who comes from the Seven Islands? Because, uh, as you know, the Greek state eventually was a puzzle that came together uh, as the result of unifications and uh, annexations and everything. The Seven Islands were annexed in 1864 to the Greek, to the Greek state. And what are the Seven Islands? The Seven Islands are the beautiful islands on the other side of the mainland Greece, not the Aegean, from uh, Corfu to Lefkada. And uh, they have been for centuries under Italian domination, then for a few decades under British, before that under French, and they were given as a present by Queen Victoria. Now, the level of uh, cultural life in the Seven Islands could not be compared. It could be compared to Istanbul and Izmir, uh, but nothing beyond that. Therefore, someone who would come from the Seven Islands had already a cultural passport, which was much more prestigious than it was the case for people who would come from Cappadocia. The two important historians uh, that uh, shaped Greek historiography in the 50s, 60s, 70s, were the one from Istanbul, Kostantinos Paparigopoulos. He is considered to be the, the forefather of Greek historiography. And Spiridon Zabelius, Scion of a, a scholarly family from uh, the Seven Islands. And this is symbolically telling, as I said, because the two edges of Hellenism, in a way, united forces in order to create a new model of uh, national identity, uh, which is a diasporic model. But within such a model, Anatolia is non-existent. So what happens with Karolidis, if we judge him 
as a historian, first of all, since that's what he studied. Then he taught in Izmir, uh, Istanbul, and uh, studied in Germany before coming to Athens and be a, be appointed as a as a professor of te- of uh, of history. What happens here, and that's why he attracted such uh, reaction. He he triggered such reaction among his uh, local Athenian colleagues, is that he was the first one who tried to integrate Anatolia, the Byzantine tradition, and even more interestingly, the Ottoman tradition. He is the first to give courses of Ottoman history at the university. Uh, And so you realize that this is a shift of paradigm in Greek historiography. So it's not only that he uh, he comes from Anatolia, from Cappadocia, he's an outsider uh, in social terms. He's also someone who, in his uh, literary production and in the focus he gives to particular historical periods, he brings a revolution at the university. Can we say that the Cappadocians, like Karoidides, uh, are at the roots of the idea of Greater Greece? That would also include Anatolia. Uh, the idea of Greater Greece starts from people who used to live in Greece as early as the 40s, who would facilitate the uh, incorporation of uh, Irredentist fantasies and uh, the the non uh, the unredeemed Greece into the Greek state. It is not something that came from outside. I don't believe that Cappadocians ever, even in the 1920s, would look the prospect of being united to the Greek state as something feasible or as something that that would be their choice it's one it's one thing to fantasize about a unity a cultural unity religious unity the feeling that you belong symbolically somewhere and another thing to welcome an army and decide to make such a radical choice uh, in practice this was expressed by the fact that there was no warfare in these regions ever. Even when they were asked to leave, these people didn't know why they had to go. I mean, there are the short answer to your question is no. On the other hand, uh, what I think is more important here is the fact that what they tried to do is the opposite. They tried to break the Athenian hegemony because there was one model of cultural domination and historical domination. I mean, for these scholars like Carolides, like others, after a point, since just imagine, the guy was the professor of history at the University of Athens. There was no way that he could accept him and others that there is only one center of uh, Greek culture, and this center is Athens, and everyone else from Macedonia to 
Crete to uh, Cappadocia to Antalya, they're only moving around as satellites. They cannot produce originally and they have to accept whatever the Athenian center dictates them. That was their uh, life struggle. Produce based on folklore, based on religion, based on iconology, their own local identity, historical and cultural, and try to present it as an alternative Greek identity. And that's where we are now moving into alternative forms of uh, Greekness or Greek ethnicity. For them, it was just, just it was not enough just to imitate. They knew they could produce original culture. That's what they did. And this, of course, triggered reactions in Athens against something which was considered to be distorted. I mean, anything that has Turkish within it, it cannot be original Greek culture. So all sorts of problems begin at a cultural and at a scholarly level now. Because we produce something scholarly which is alternative and challenging to the national canon. And this is no joke. So this is really fascinating. I mean, I'm amazed that you know, he was such a successful historian and we found out how he became a professor of history in Athens. How did he make this shift from historian to parliamentarian? After his career as a, as a professor at the University of Athens, the moment came that with the Young Turk Revolution, there was a new avenue now, and that was politics. 1908-9, he is accepted as a nominee for the community in Izmir, then he is elected, and then he has a short career as a deputy at the Ottoman Parliament. Now, what is interesting here is that someone who is from Cappadocia, who makes, makes all these studies, goes to Athens, teaches as a university professor, returns back to Izmir, and he is not accepted, at least by the local Cappadocians, as a local. He is now an Athenian. After all these years, he carries a different attitude, a different mentality. So he's treated as an outsider, again, by the uh, people in Izmir, by many. Anyhow, eventually he ends up as a deputy in the parliament. And again, there is a problem because he has been a memur, he has been a civil servant for so many years in Athens. How can someone who has been working for the Greek state to uh, become an Ottoman deputy? In the uh, in the parliament, though, eventually he is uh, he manages to resolve these bureaucratic issues. But what is more important is that, again, since he is so knowledgeable in terms of Ottoman history, in terms of Islam, in terms of aspects that other Greek deputies have no clue, this kind of uh, cultural affinity allows him to be more smoothly accepted among his colleagues. That's important. It tells us something about the possibilities within the Ottoman context, despite the bureaucratic tensions. That was, even that was possible. Someone who has worked for so many years as a university professor in a different country, be accepted. However, that's not the, the most crucial part of this discussion. And actually, it took me some time as I started uh, digging further into the, this kind of uh, divisions to 
find out what was going on. And this is related with the broader context. When I started with my research, the, what we knew, what was conveyed to us, is that uh, the, Ottoman, the Greek Ottoman deputies were divided into two groups. Later on, I found out that the same was true with the Armenians. But it was presented as a kind of fact of life and it was related to personal divisions. Now, that's where I would like to go back to what we knew about the different versions of uh, Greek identity. Uh, because that time, even the most elaborate of the uh, accounts gave us a picture, uh, a black and white picture of institutions and peoples who were motivated by their modern or pre-modern ideas. We used to learn that the church was a pre-modern institution. We used to learn that the new middle classes were actually inspired by modernity. Uh, but that was a, a very Marxist uh, approach that did not allow any space for local, temporary and cultural divisions. Uh, so there was a problem there because there were phenomena, there were conflicts that we could not explain. I mean, the fact that in Izmir, for instance, I mean, I have a, by, my dissertation was on Izmir, and that's the case I know more, although after that uh, I did more research for other communities as well. So I think up to now you've done, you know, you've given us this great description of kind of local Greek identities that didn't fit into the Milet system, that didn't fit into Greek or na Turkish nationalisms. You know, one, the main one being Cappadocian uh, Greek identity and how, you know, they saw themselves as Anatolian Christian. So uh, if you're just to list some other examples of local Greek identities or local other, you know, what would those be? You know, there are similar cases. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, the, my latest research that had not be had not be completed, unfortunately, this year is about the Black Sea. There are guys over there, exactly the same period. Now I'm referring to the period after 1909, who have some connection with Cappadocia as part of the migration pattern. So that's also very important because migration patterns bring people and bring products, and they create. Uh, paths of economic development but also of political interaction so it was a, for me an interesting surprise to find out that at least two of the people who are active in uh, the Black Sea have origins in Cappadocia and they collaborate with, the, with, the, the, with people like Karolidis so the networks go far beyond the West, Western Anatolia and I'm, I'm in the process of discovering more and more my my general feeling is that what I've touched and started working on publishing these articles is almost the top of the iceberg of something broader. And what is this broader is that there are people who, for various reasons, Turkish language speaking being one of them, uh, different economic interests being another one, the fact that they are closer to the state administration. I mean, there are several bureaucrats among the Cappadocians that we are discussing, and they become local, not governors, but 
governor deputies. And they are all Cappadocians. Or they are somehow connected with Cappadocian networks. So this cannot be a coincidence. What I'm saying is that so far we had institutions in in our minds saying that the church is a conservative institution, traditional institution, closer to the state, exactly because this notion of milleted presentation makes it uh, more convenient to work with. But how do you answer the question of why the local church in Izmir, that was for me a major question, collaborates with the Greek state against the patriarchate? That's not a question that can be answered in Marxist terms in terms of uh, modernity versus pre-modernity. So I decided to go uh, uh, deeper into uh, cultural and economic networks. And it started giving uh, results. Now, there is another figure, another article, uh, another similar case with Carolides, but from a different background, Emanuele Emanuelidis, who was a lawyer who studied both in Istanbul and in Athens, who was also from Cappadocia, as a member of this network of Cappadocians who established, who settled in Izmir and made a career there, although a career totally contrary to the current of the local Hellenic community, he cooperated with the local Ottoman administration, especially after 1909, he also becomes a deputy nominated by the CUP, the uh, community, the Committee of uh, uh, Union and Progress in Izmir. So he was someone who worked, one could say, for the Turks before he himself gets totally disappointed, turns completely in his political choices and starts defending the Christians against the persecutions implemented by the the young Turks. Now, what I find, if we need to bring it to an end, what I find very important in this discussion is not whether these people had believed in the possibility of coexistence between Greeks and Turks. That's important. And they had, they did believe. It's not whether they were inspired by an um, a need to take revenge against the mainstream Greek ideology, so they found the, they found the moment to raise their voice. That's also important. What I find more important is that in the post literature, what we knew so far, exactly because of the fact that they did not fit into a particular mainstream model of national ideology, Greek or Turkish. They were totally abandoned. Nobody cared about them, the individuals. And we've reached a moment when we still discuss whether they were opportunists or not, whether what they did they believe in or not. They themselves were trying to make forget all their activity. Because it would be unthinkable for someone like Carolides Emanuelidis, post facto, to try to defend, don't forget that Emanuelidis made a career in politics in Greece. How can he defend his past? 
So now that the time is appropriate, I think that at least we can shed some light to an era where people have to make very difficult choices without having any clear prospect about where things are going. And I think this is more universal as a category, as yes, as an argument, than just sticking with things Turkish or Greek, because they become, after all, very localized and not that fascinating for audiences that have no concern about Anatolia or the Aegean. You see. So what I'm trying to do here is suggest as it has been suggested in so many other literatures, take, for example, the Arabs, in the same, exactly the same respect. All of the earlier Ottoman officials became uh, independence leaders. I mean, this kind of debate here, I think, using culture, using locality, using time, make us understand more than just sticking with the two mainstreams, which... Apparently, state nationalism is trying to promote. One last technical question. Since you said that now it's time to bring these figures out of oblivion, so where does one look for them? Which archives? Private? State archives? Ottoman archives? I had, I had problem with all cases. Uh, since you need to really search deep for this kind of information, that's not apparent. Even the concept does not exist. I mean, when uh, I had started publishing about Emmanuel Lidis, one of his uh, grandchildren found me on the internet. He was uh, very uh, frustrated by what I was writing. But eventually, archival material started coming from family uh, collections as well. The Ottoman archives are a treasure in this respect. It's just that we do not ra- search sometimes at the right place because this is a persona of the same individual that we don't like, that we don't care about. Beyond, Even beyond than that, uh, there are still n- newspapers available that if you read them in a certain manner, lead you to certain results. Uh, last but not least, for the Greeks, the Patriarchate. And it was uh, interesting how, of course, there is censorship, preemptive censorship there. But since the people do not know, I'm talking about the archive, what is uh, worth it from the information that you are going to extract, you are there actually in a very privileged position because you know started creating a scenario which is your own which is your own scenario at the end well thank you so much uh for coming on the podcast today angelis i think we've um heard a great deal and i mean some exciting research about uh how to pull out these local greek identities that have been erased by both uh the nationalist movements of the past and much of the nationalist impulses of uh, current-day scholarship. Um, so thank you again for coming on the show. That was my pleasure. Thank you for the interview. Thank you. And for those listeners who are interested uh, in finding out more, uh, 
please go to ottomanhistorypodcast.com, look at the episode link, there'll be a bibliography, uh, links and references to more work where you can uh, read to your heart's content. So thank you.